We're going to have communion this morning. It is the meal of thanksgiving. It's a meal that Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You know, everything we do is about Jesus. I don't know if you know that. How many of you remember when you became a Christian, he said, okay, follow the rules. Stay in line, and if you step out of line, I'm done with you. We've gone over this before. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That which you began in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? We get saved by grace through faith, and not of anything we earn, lest we boast. In other words, if we could come to the Lord and be saved and go to heaven based on our works, we have something to boast about because I've worked harder than other people and I've earned more. But when it comes right down to it, salvation is a gift. It's just as much of a gift if I had my wallet, which I don't. It's in the car, but it's locked. Um, and I came and gave you $1,000. It's a gift. And what did you do to earn it? Kevin, why are you give? I'm just giving it to you. But you say, I don't want it. I don't want your $1,000. If we don't receive it, we don't receive it. But the Christian church is the only society in the world in which all of its members are unworthy for membership. Would you turn to somebody and say, you're really not qualified to be here? <laughs> you are disgusting, actually. <laughs> no, no. You turn to somebody and say, actually, because I'm a sinner, I'm qualified to be here. Because I make mistakes and I come up short, I'm qualified to be here. Because I'm not perfected, but I'm pressing on towards the upward call in Christ Jesus my Lord. Not that I've attained it, yet I press on. Is it possible to be, involved, be not involved in a, a church or a community and still be a Christian? Yes, sure. It's like being a student not, uh, but not going to school, a soldier without an army. It's like being a salesman with no customers. It's like being an explorer with no base camp or a businessman on a deserted island or a football player without a team. Sure, there are many lone rangers out there that are going around, man, yeah, I'm not into church or organized religion, but I'm spiritual, I guarantee that. Whatever that means, what does that mean? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Apparently, the church was very important to Christ himself. The church is our base camp to go out and do mission. And so when we come together, like today, as you prayed for one another, you're, you're redefining who you are. You're recalibrating, saying, yes, this is a burden. Would you pray for me? Yes, this is... And we get recalibrated, but we get recalibrated not just to stay here, but to go there, right? The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means called out ones. So you and I have been called out of something, called out of the world, to be in the world, but not of the world, not to derive our life from the world. Called out of it, to pursue the kingdom of God. In Acts 14, 514, it says, and men and women were constantly being added to their number. 
I don't know how many believers there are in the world. I don't have the exact figure, but I'll give you a guess. 1,975,322. I don't know the statistics because a believer could be a whole group of churches, but not everyone in those churches necessarily. But there, the Bible describes believers as a vine, a vine that's going out over all the earth. So where John and Erica are, for example, in Mongolia, there's a vine of Christ. They're going to meet Mongolians who are Christians that weren't raised in the local Methodist or Baptist church. That the living God penetrated a culture like outer Mongolia and showed them who was the Christ, who was the Messiah. When the Apostle Paul addressed the churches, it's always people he addresses, not buildings. Would you bring up 1 Corinthians 1, 2. I just want to read this to you. This is how, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He doesn't give an address. He just gives the where is the city, and he addresses the believers, the church, the Christian church is not a place. Now, there are places like you always hear about the sacred sites in many religions. And of course, in Rome, we were there a couple years ago, and you know, St. Peter's. There's all this stuff that you really do revere when you look at the architecture and the history. But as far as being holy, it's about people, it's not about sites. Now, what happened at that site may have been holy, and you can, you can, we can benefit from that and be edified, but the church is never a place. It's never a program. It is not a man-made institution. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There were no church buildings in the first 300 years of Christianity, primarily due to the fact of uh, persecution. It wasn't until uh, the time of Constantine when, through his own edict, everyone became a Christian as long as they were born within the... He developed the parish system and control, and the church from there grew into much more of an institutional basis. The idea was one didn't go to church, but the church would go to others. I shared with someone recently, you know what God wants most in your life? It's for you to go to church, right? That's his highest calling on you. That's his purpose, just to come to church, right? A lot of pastors, I think, believe that. <laughs> to get you in, fill that warm seat, expand, blow out that back wall. Let's have two services, four services. I'm not knocking... People, I sounds like I am, but I'm not. I'm just saying that his purpose is for you to know him and love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. I told this story several times, but I, a lady who, I don't know, she found out I was a pastor, 
and so she came up to me, and I was at a, I was at a gathering. Actually, I was mad at my brother because he told him I was a pastor. And then I, I knew once they know I'm a pastor, I need to put on my pastor face. You know, not really. But she came up to me and said, Pastor, nice to meet you. What do you believe God's saying in light of the end times? What's going on in the Middle East and all this? She, went, she preached for about five minutes about everything in the late great planet Earth, I guess. And she was telling me all this stuff. And, and I said, uh, well, you know what he's really saying to me? She, and she was leaning forward and said, what? I said, to love more. I mean, you could just see the whole balloon, the air came out of the balloon, because what a boring thing to say. When we, we have all the end times figure out, we have, we have maps and charts that can tell you exactly what's going to happen when it's happened. I'm going to tell you, there are no certainties in that. People can have all, and when it doesn't come out as people say it's going to come out, they just recalibrate another set of things. What is certain is the second coming. He is coming back. And when he comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. And when he does come back, when that could be, it could be this afternoon, it could be 500 years from now. It could be 5,000 years from now. No, no, Kevin, it can't be 5,000 years. They can't be. How do you know? We don't know. I think when he said go and wait in Jerusalem after he rose to heaven, I think they thought they'd see him again pretty fast. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's been 2,000 years. He's tearing. Why? Because he wants a great harvest through the ages. He started out with 12 men. He discipled and the women. And he tells them to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. This is a with me faith. This is not a philosophical faith where we just try to do good, but it's with Christ in me, the hope of glory, with me in all things. When we assemble, it's a blessing of corporiety. It's to strengthen our resolve to serve the Lord and his kingdom. So in the Old Testament, where did he dwell? He dwelt in a temple that Solomon built, the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark. All of you know that. But what about now? Bring up 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is one of the, do you not know? that you're the temple. It's not St. Peter's. It's not the Crystal Cathedral or whatever it is now. That you are the temple. I mean, wait a minute. What about the church? And the, yeah, we use facilities. We're smart. We're stewards. We need a place to meet. We've got air. We've got lights. We've got overhead. We do those things, but that is not the substance. That's the shadow. God dwells in each one of you if, you've, if you are a believer. And that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you. It'll quicken your mortal body when we do come to eternity's shore. In fact, you will never die. You have eternal life. Every movie in Hollywood is about the secret of eternal life. You've already got it. However, this earthen vessel will die. 
latest statistics are one out of one die. <laughs> no matter how, I don't care if you're a billionaire, I don't care if you've owned this life, you're one of the most powerful men or women in the world, you too come to an end. It's the great equalizer. You may milk it for 90, even 100, at 110, it gets real, real narrow. You get a column in a newspaper if you live to be 113, just before they died at 113. It's very humbling to think that God would dwell in me. Read uh, 2 Corinthians 6.16. It's another one that hits me. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, as living stones, how can a stone be alive? But apparently we are stones that are alive. He's using a metaphor about building a building, a temple. Each dwelling us individually, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So once again, we see that we are the church. We are the temple. And if you read through it, that's why there's so many things about, in Corinthians, he talks a lot about adultery and fornication and things like that, because when those sins are done, it's not just against, it's against your, the temple your own body. It's important to understand that. The church is living stones and Christ is the chief cornerstone, building and joining us together into an organic living body, which is his church. This church is one of many churches here in Southern California and around the world gathers. We identify as Saddleback Covenant Church. We could say we're a community of faith but we are joined together with the, the broader body of Christ, both in Southern California, all throughout the United States, and all over the world. If they don't speak our language, we're joined with them. If we don't have the same color skin, we're joined with them. If they live in a communist country, we're joined with them, because the body of Christ has no limits to where God is investing his purposes. Because he's the one who said, for as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with my glory. The glory of God is moving today throughout this entire planet. I, I'm not, I don't know when to break into my family vacation, but I had a, um, a week and a half news blackout. <laughs> I mean, I had the shakes. Uh, you know, I, I mean, because the sunset was beautiful, kids were laughing. People seem to be have gas in their car and enjoying themselves. They caught a trout by the stream, but it was nothing about politics or anything else. I, I mean, and I, I realized how we get joined into what's going on, and we're worried about so many things that most of which we 
have no control. They've actually done a study and that 92% of the things you worry about will never happen. And the other 8% you have no control over. <laughs> so don't waste your time is what it's saying. In fact, he says that, I can't remember, I think it's in Corinthians, he says that worry is sin. And, you know, I said, well, I don't worry. I just have a lot of concern. <laughs> we justify it. We do have concerns, but worry, uh, there's a place if, if you know, if you, you have a daughter that goes out and she's supposed to be home at 11 o'clock and you haven't heard from her, it's one in the morning, you worry. There's a, there's a normal human component to that. But to live our life worried and trying to control outcomes so that everything will be right, that's a bondage that the Lord never really intended for you or I. So the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So if I hurt or defame you or slander you or disregard you, in a very real sense, I'm doing that to God. That's why if I have to, or you have to confront me or someone else, you do it with tenderness and you do it as if it was being done to you. But there is a point where you must confront someone or you should, or you should listen or you should speak. But there's a sensitivity to the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And I don't deal with you just, I can't deal with you in some kind of cavalier, you don't matter way. I've got to deal with you in a way that you're a child of God the Spirit of God dwells in you. And I said, listen, I have something I want to say to you. And hopefully it'll be helpful. Our gifts and callings are from the Holy Spirit. We don't earn them. They're gifts. Gifts are to be used in obedience and submission to the Lord. Your gift, whatever it is, will make a way for itself. You don't have to force it, push it, promote yourself, make yourself this or that. Just your gifting will make a way if you just lean into the Lord and be faithful. Your gift is not only for our church, but wherever you go. If you have a gift, how many, how many have the gift of service? How many like hanging around people that have the gift of service? <laughs> people that just, there are some people you can barely turn around before they there's a glass of water in your hand. They just are servants, and they, they, I don't know how they do it. They do it in such a seamless way. Um, but I've noticed people like that. I've noticed they're the same. They're not doing it just at potlucks and gatherings, marriage gatherings or something. They do it everywhere. It's a gift operating. And if you have a gift of, um, some people have a gift of leadership, and they lead wherever they are. They're not trying to lead. They're not pushing it or anything else, but they're leading. Most of them were good followers at one time. Gifts joined to character are the real charisma of the church. So using your gifts joined to your character. And your character is your integrity. Your character is what you are when nobody's looking. Your character is really who we are. And I, am, I have no more character than I have right now. Neither do you. So character is something that God forms. And character is formed a lot of times through failure. When you failed at some point, when you've let someone down, when you've disappointed someone, and um, other times where you've 
you, you feel hurt and maligned and all that, but then God gives you an extra measure of grace to forgive and move on. Something's happening in the process of this journey, abiding in him, that is creating character. And so character with gifting is a wonderful thing. And I, I've been in this long enough around ministry and ministers. I've seen some tremendously gifted people with very little character. And people tend to bow down sometimes to gift and anointing of a person. And it turns out the person is immoral or unethical. And it's a huge disappointment in the church. We're supposed to know those that labor among us. And um, so character is really important for pastors, elders, fathers, husbands, wives, and for children. So we were just at our family reunion, and one of the questions came up and said, so how did, what was the biggest thing on how I raised my kids? One of my other nieces asked me that, which is a tough question. And I said, uh, I don't know. I'm just a natural, I guess. <laughs> no, I said, um, uh, we always emphasize character over achievement. When you emphasize achievement, your, your kind of love for your latest achievement. And if you don't achieve, love then abates. You know, it drops down. And so there's this, it's like clawing, like a hamster, constantly trying to get more approval by more achievement. But character is about that if your son lies or your daughter lies, that you face them off and you deal with this in a way that makes them aware that there are not going to be any liars in your family. That's up to you, Dad and Mom. Back them up. And how you do it, it's, sometimes the Bible tells us certain things, but it's in the application of how you do things that makes all the difference in the world. You can take the same scripture and use it in a way that's harsh and mean, and will bear no fruit. And you can take the same scripture with the Holy Spirit working in you and see some things. So I would say as a parent, um, some of the most intimate times I had with my children were in times of discipline. I don't know about the children. You'll have to ask them. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm tempted to tell a few stories, but I won't, because Matt's in the back. David's in here somewhere. Um, and. Um, but it's really important that we get a hold of that thing about character. But character alone, he didn't leave us. With, he gave us gifts. We have, we have these beautiful uh, Lindsay and Hannah and others who can sing and Pat who can play. It's a gift. We have people that can teach. It's a gift. We have people that really do serve selflessly. I don't know if any how many of you have ever asked that don't do it, how do we get the donuts or the bread every week? Who does that? I don't know, man. It just shows up. They must be on staff. We don't have a staff for donuts. <laughs> Somebody's doing something. And, uh, you know, I mean, um, so I just want you to understand that. So back to this family reunion. It was a very rich time, and part of it was honoring my parents, who passed away 23 years ago. We got to, everybody together, there was 21 kids under 14 and 23 adults, and we had an overhead, and my brother kind of took us through my parents' lineage, and we had pictures, some that went all the way back to the 1880s, 
and it was really uh, powerful. Then they had some video of me and my brothers when we were kids, uh, and we had a lot of laughs. And it was a rich time, and um, I could tell you more in the coffee room about it. But I just—it was a very meaningful time. Probably the only time we'll ever do this because of different circumstances. But afterwards, um, we were coming back home, and, and then um, my brother invited us to go to Wyoming. And we said, nah, we can't do it. You know, we got to get back to the church. Lots going on. And Dudley and I started talking. I said, let's do it. Let's just go to Wyoming. So we did. We left there, and we drove up to Jackson Hole. And um, Gary Urban, a dear friend, told me there's a place called the lake, the, the lodge at Jackson Lake. He says, you got to go there at sunset. You can see the Tetons. So we're driving up, and we, I'm trying to call my brother. I said, uh, I can't get through. The phone's not good. And uh, then I called the hotel. He's staying at the Grand Teton Lodge. I'm trying to tell him that we're going to be at this other place. And they said, I've never heard of the Grand Teton Lodge. Well, that's where he's staying. And uh, so then we, we kept driving, and... and um, through a series of phone calls, they explained to us the Grand Teton Lodge is over four lodges. There's really only one lodge you can stay at. So we took that lodge. And I said, by the way, is there a David Davenport staying there? I said, yeah. He said, where? They shouldn't have told me this, but they said 504. <laughs> I said, is there a room nearby? And they said, yeah. Which one? He said, 506. <laughs> so I said, I'll take it. So we surprised them. They didn't know we were coming. That was a big deal. And uh, we spent an extra night there. Dudley got to see a moose. And um, <laughs> was it a moose or a meese you saw? A meese. Um, so then we drove, spent the night. Then we drove down to Jackson Hole, which is a town. And we got there. And this was really fun for Dudley and I because we had no reservations anywhere. So we're just driving along. Where do you want to stay? Let's try this place. So we go in. And um, I got to tell you. This is the way we can be as people, but the outside of this thing was beautiful. Had a, a log cabin and stuff, and the person at the gate, uh, the desk was nice. Said, yeah, uh, we're here for, like to stay for the night. He's got a room available? Yeah. I said, well, do you mind if I could see it first? He said, uh, sure. So then we go through this walk. It felt like a quarter of a mile back to the back. <laughs> go up to the, it looked like World War II barracks. And I... <laughs> I said, uh, how much is this? He said, 308. I said, but you get breakfast. I said, wow, I'd rather stay at the Ritz <laughs> for 308. And so we did this. We did it like five times. I was getting tired. And um, Dudley went in with me a couple times. And the places were just run down and overpriced. She did like one. We went into one, and she said, I like this one. But it was $789 a night. <laughs> And it was, it was, and believe it or not, it was sold out. And I had on a T-shirt. I don't think he looked at me like, hmm, I don't even know if you could afford this. And I, anyway, so we're driving around. Dudley, this is the thing. Two weeks ago, I talked. I, pr I talked about prayers. Anybody remember that? I, one person, maybe. <laughs> Somebody. Thank you. Steve raised his hand. Just threw me a bone. But I was talking about the power of prayer. And I told you the story years ago, um, about not, a couple years ago, when we were in Africa and how the Jeep got stuck in the middle of lion country. We had to get out. 
and all the guys were immediately being logical and pushing and doing all this stuff to get it out, and we couldn't move it. And Dudley said, Kevin, Kevin, don't you think we should pray? Uh, who are you? You know? <laughs> no, but I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, we, should. we did pray, and I'm not kidding you. Within five minutes, that thing came out of this rut, and it was in there. We didn't, no one would even come to get us out because of this black tar we in. So this time we're riding around again. I've just done the sermon on prayer, and Dudley says, you know, why don't we pray that the Lord will just direct us to the right hotel? Duh. I said, I, you know, and men, you know how you are at that point. I, we don't need to pray. I got this figured out. You know, we, we're going to get a hotel. What's the, so I said, okay. And so we prayed, and I'm not kidding you. I pulled into this place and parked. It turned out to be a motel parking lot. I went in, and this was the first guy that was halfway decent to us. The room was uh, about $150 less. It had a big leather couch. It had a balcony. And it was like right in the heart of town where we wanted to be. And I just was once again reminded of the power of prayer in a very simple way. So the next time you hit something that ain't going too well, back off, sit back, say, Lord, will you direct me in this? Help me. Calm my spirit. It was really great. We had a, um, and that evening we went to dinner and there was no, uh, everything was pretty much full. So they, there was just one place. It was at a bar. Not, it was a restaurant, but only two seats at the bar. So we sat down here. Dudley's here and I'm here and the other people are here, but they're right on top of us. And I just looked at him. I said, looks like we're having dinner together. <laughs> and uh, we ended up talking to them and they were, one was a lobbyist. They both lived in Washington, D.C. And um, two hours, solid talk. At the end of two hours, they didn't know what I did or anything about me other than, they said, hey, Kevin, what, what do you do anyway? What's your, what do you, I said, guess. <laughs> and for all you businessmen, they thought I was in corporate mergers. <laughs> and, and, or, he said, either that or you're a psychologist. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Dudley, they said, I think she's artistic. And um, so they had, and I said, actually, I'm a pastor. And when I said that, their jaw just dropped to the floor. <laughs> they, did, I mean, it, it was like, and then they both shared their entire church experience, one from a Catholic background, one from a Presbyterian, how they believed in God, but they couldn't find church to work in their life. And we started talking to them about God for the last half hour, and it was the Holy Spirit. And I told Dud Dudley and I, left, and he said, man, that was amazing. That was the Holy Spirit. We may or may not see him again. We traded numbers and stuff. But it was, it was effortless. It was on vacation. It's not in the bulletin. It's, in the bulletin, you will meet one couple for dinner and make sure you give a good witness. We just talked to him, and it's out there for us, okay? So I'm saying you're the, we're the called out ones, and it's there. Well, I was going to talk talk about the 5,000. We don't have time. And I was going to talk about the 4,000, two different times when Jesus fed the multitudes. We'll get back to that. But one thing I will say about when he fed the multitudes, after being on this family reunion, we had people in trailers out, you know, it's called glamping. But Jesus had been talking to people three days in the wilderness so what did they bring to listen to him in the wilderness? And they had no, f they were running out of food. And Jesus said it felt compassion for them. 
And um, the disciples said, well, we don't, what do we do? What do we have money? There, if they had money, there was nowhere to buy the food. And of course, that's the one where there were seven loaves left over and they were fed. But I want to say, whatever, if you're facing anything in the area of provision, God will provide. God will provide. He always does. The second thing about the loaves and the fishes, it's only five loaves and two fishes, but that's all it takes. What do you, you don't have enough to offer anything to anybody. Your life is kind of nondescript, or you don't have any... You don't have anything to offer. But if you offer five loaves and two fishes, it's amazing what he'll do to multiply. So the second thing this morning as we come to the table is to give, give what you have, not what you don't have. Don't work to get to a point where you can give because now I've got enough to give, but just where you are and grow into it. The other thing is, the third thing about this morning is that lessons are repeated. I have left the top off the peanut butter jar probably 67 times in my life, probably 30 times in the last month. <laughs> Bad habits or something. We relearn. I'm better now. It's, it's working better? Sometimes. Sometimes. Thank you. <laughs> I am working on it. Some of you are natural neatniks. I know. You don't get people like me. But uh, it's the way it works. But we have to learn lessons over and over again. So after they after he had fed them, they left and they forgot the bread. And they only had one loaf of bread and they're freaking out. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is leaven is like something puffed up. Didn't you just see what I did? Don't you understand that I'm with you? I'm in the boat. We're going to make it. It's fine. Just, and uh, so just know that sometimes you have to learn a lesson more than once. How many of us have felt like you really know what you're talking about? You've learned that. I know that. And then you get shocked to realize you don't know as much as you thought you knew by circumstances. How many of you are really sanctified and you feel like you don't have any anger in you and you're a very pleasant person and then somebody hits a nerve? You can't believe that you had that response. It's another lesson. God, Lord, help me. And finally, the last thing is we come to the table. He's compassionate. Those people out there that have been there three days, he cared about their stomach. He cared that they had enough. I mean, three days. I don't even know what the sanitary conditions were. I don't, to bring three days food, there's you know, 4,000 of them. I can't imagine how they managed that and, and, and planned for it. I don't think it was planned as a three-day conference. You are not now and never will be a statistic. Please don't ever say that in front of me. I always get mad. I'll never be able to buy a home in Southern California. This is too expensive. The market is... What? You don't think God can get you a home in an expensive market? Is he that short, his arm? I never want to raise kids in Southern California. Where do you want to raise them? where they'll grow up perfect. You're saying that the circumstances outside of you are controlling you, and I say the circumstances inside of us control what's happening through the Holy Spirit and the power of God.